This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, writers, lens crafters, keyhole viewers, ghosts and gods. I'm Grant Faulkner, and I'm here with my very perspectivist co-host, Brooke Warner. And the reason I'm greeting you with such words today is because we're going to explore the point of view that stories are told with, especially the less conventional points of view. And our guest today is Jimin Han, who is one of the nicest and most generous writers I know. And she's written a wonderful new novel, The Apology. And it's it's many things. You know, it's a, it's a tale of sisterhood and diaspora. And it reaches back to the days of Japanese colonialism and the Korean War. And then what really captivated me was how it's told through the singular voice of a defiant, funny, and unforgettable 105-year-old ghost who makes the story part ghost story and part family epic. And I thought the narrative point of view was crucial in this story, and it made me think about how not only is having a character who is 105 narrate the story a challenge, but I thought how interesting it is to think of the story as one told by a ghost. And this made me think about how I write with a very, you know, I tend to write with very conventional points of view, to tell you the truth. And I I don't think we've focused exclusively on point of view in past episodes. So I thought it'd be interesting to explore some of the more inventive points of view and think about how or if they serve the story. So I'm curious, Brooke, what's the most uncommon point of view you've ever read? Yeah, I love that question. And a few came to mind when I started to ponder it. Um, It also made me think about how uncommon points of view lead to such a unique flavor to what we read. And then, you know, how these, it makes the books more distinct and memorable. So because when I was asking myself, like, they totally popped to mind because they're memorable. Mm -hmm. One novel that's really ambitious in this way is Room by Emma Donahue. And listeners may remember the indie film by the same name. And that was a film that was nominated for several Oscars. But the novel is told through the eyes of a five-year-old boy who's trapped with his mother in a small room. And what makes that story so interesting is that he knows nothing of the outside world. Like he's he's been raised inside this single room. So there's the double challenge of writing from the perspective of a character who's so young, but also a character who really doesn't know what the world is. And so that sets up lots of different tension and drama for the reader uh, that I found really powerful and sad. Uh, and then I want to mention The Art of Racing in the Rain by Garth Stein, because Garth was on Right Minded several years ago. Uh, it's a novel that's written through the eyes of Enzo, a dog. <laughs> <laughs> and Enzo is a friend of Danny Swift, who's a race car driver, and Enzo narrates the story uh, as Denny faces his various failures. And there's actually a long history of dogs narrating stories going all the way to Jack London. When in doubt, write the story through a dog's <laughs> point of view. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, well, and we get a lot of submissions at She Writes Press where authors are writing through dogs' point of view. So I, I guess, you know, clearly dogs make good narrators. 
Uh, and I can totally imagine my dog be narrating her own story. So just saying. <laughs> and then before I move on, Grant, I want to speak to The Lovely Bones by Alice Siebold because it's told from the point of view of a girl who is raped and murdered in a small town. Uh, and she's looking down on her family. So in some ways, she's a ghost like the protagonist in uh, The Apology. And that's a very striking book and one that stayed with me for years. You know, it's easily been 15 years since I read that book. Uh, and it's also similar to Marcus Zusak's book, The Book Thief, uh, which has the perspective of death. So clearly this is one that, you know, lets narrators have a little bit of omniscience, which is great. You know, maybe it's a little bit rare in first person narrative, but they're compelling. And I, I think readers who enjoyed those books will really like Jimin's novel, The Apology. So Grant, I, I think the trick here is to be sure that the perspective you choose is true to the story, you know, and, and vice versa. Yeah, definitely. I think, I think you have to choose the point of view for a reason and to have a, a vision for that point of view. Although I, you know, after saying that, I, I suppose you could just decide to write a kooky, you know, story for pure kooky surrealist glee and, you know, tell the story of a family through a piece of breakfast toast or something like that. But, <laughs> but, but generally I, I think it's good to think about why you're telling a story through a particular point of view and, and what that gives the story, especially if it's, it's an unconventional one. And, you know, I'm going to mention a, a few unconventional stories myself. And one of the strangest uses of points of view I've experienced comes from a novel nutshell by Ian McEwan. And it's based on the story of Hamlet, but with a highly original twist. So the main character or one of the characters, Trudy, is married to Yanand and is carrying his child, but she is secretly meeting with Claude, uh, with whom she is plotting to kill her husband, much like Hamlet. But what they don't know is that there is a witness to everything they say. Inside her belly, Trudy's son listens in desperation. You guessed it. That child is young Hamlet, a very young Hamlet. <laughs> and we'll see what he does. And then one of my favorite novels of all time is We the Animals by Justin Torres. And what makes it particularly interesting is that it's narrated with this technique that's rarely seen called first-person plural, meaning that it's narrated by a group, in this case, three brothers, who tell the story through the we point of view. So they're interpreting their parents' you know, tumultuous relationship and their childhood with this collective lens and it's really interesting because they're fighting to ensure each other's survival as a group so they act as a unit in many ways but then an act of violence tears one brother away from the group and and i think the the use of the first person plural really makes this story lyrical and haunting at the same time and again it has a real reason to be there but also you know speaking of interesting uses of types of points of view the second person point of view like saying you is, is, is a fascinating one to use because of the way, you know, it implicates the reader in the story. The reader essentially becomes a character, you know, which, and a character which they may or may not be. So it's, it creates a, a sense of dramatic tension. And so just as an example, I'm going to put out there, um, If on a Winter's Night, a Traveler, which is by Italo Calvino. And in the story, you the reader are attempting to pursue a book called F on a winter's night, a traveler, but you keep getting interrupted. You read a compelling opening section before you're forced to put your book down and pick up something new. And with every chapter you encounter a different adventure, you know, it's a story about what it means to get lost in a book. And though you may have been searching for an escape, you know what it means to find yourself on the other side. So just to get a sense of this, here's an excerpt from Calvino's first chapter of F on a winter night, a traveler. You're about to begin reading Italo Calvino's new novel, If on a Winter's Night a Traveler. Relax. Concentrate. Dispel every other thought. Let the world around you fade. 
Best to close the door. The TV is always on in the next room. Tell others right away. No, I don't want to watch TV. Raise your voice. They won't hear you otherwise. I'm reading. I don't want to be disturbed. So here you are now, ready to attack the first lines of the first page. You prepare to recognize the unmistakable tone of the author. So you're guided through the book by the author and your character in the book, the reader. Yeah, that's an engaging example of, you know, a a very unique point of view. uh, And it reminds me of something that we were talking about uh, in our last week's episode with Lisa Leshny, this idea of the meta narrator or meta narration, uh, which is, I think, becoming seemingly more popular, although it's always kind of been around. Um, I was talking about that because of Barbie. You know, Mm. it's like Barbie has this very meta uh, way of presenting the story. Um, And and we see this a lot in movies, you know, where you might have a narrator come in to tell the story. You see that in like the Titanic or in the Barbie movie. It was Helen Mirren, you know, even who goes so far as to interrupt the story at one point. Uh, And so I, I like this idea of sort of thinking about it in a meta concept. And I, I looked up the word meta, like what does that mean? And it's showing or suggesting an explicit awareness of itself or oneself as a member of its category. Uh, and I just share that because that's what that opening reminded me of. Like the writer is talking to the reader of this way and and self-referencing his own work, like you're sitting down to read an Italo Calvino novel. Uh, Of course, Italo Calvino is one of the most important Italian fiction writers of the 20th century, and he was known for his imaginative style in in narrative. I sort of think you have to either have an existing body of work to pull something like that off very well, or maybe be a kind of prodigy, (laughs) (laughs) either or. Uh, But that said, you know, the discussion is definitely making me think about how there's really infinite ways in which a story might be told. Yeah, definitely. I think point of view plays into those infinite ways in a in a really crucial way. Um, and since we're talking about point of view, I'm going to share um, some writing exercises that were developed by a NaNoWriMo writer by the name of Eva Deverell. And she's also known as Lady Writer on the internet. And she has a blog that has a lot of wonderful writing exercises. And she even um, has, and they're free, and um, she has some free point of view worksheets available as well. And just wanted to read some of her point of view prompts that you might try if you want to leave this episode with a, with a writing prompt. So number one, you could rewrite your day from someone else's point of view. That'd be fun. You can rewrite your opening scene from a minor character's point of view. I think this is a really good way to get to know your story. Uh, you can rewrite the story of how you met your best friend, but from their point of view, Uh, You can take a passage from your favorite novel and transpose it into another point of view. I think that's a really interesting way, again, to kind of understand a novel. And some of this even gets into like fan fiction. That's a great way to to, to write fan fiction. Uh, Try to write an omniscient account of everyone you encountered this morning. Uh, And then write a second person uh, choose your own adventure style account of a decision you you made or are considering. What a great way to decide something. (laughs) So fun stuff. And if you just Google uh, Eva Deverell, you will find more worksheets and tips like that. There's really nothing better than a choose your own adventure. (laughs) There isn't. I love those exercises and it's a great reminder of 
the fact, right, that one of the great benefits of reading and writing fiction is to see the world through other people's eyes. And, you know, this goes without saying, but when we take on other people's points of view, we walk in their shoes, we get out of our own heads. Uh, critically, we also build tolerance and understanding, which is why we love readers and writers. Uh, so I'm super looking forward to hearing more of Jimin's thoughts about her novel, The Apology, after this short break. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back, everybody. I'm very excited to introduce Jimin Han, who was born in Seoul, South Korea, but then grew up in Providence, Rhode Island, Dayton, Ohio, and Jamestown, New York. And she is author of The Apology, which just came out, and A Small Revolution. Additional writing of hers can be found online at American Public Media's Weekend America, Poets and Writers, where she just wrote this great article on everything an author should know after your manuscript has been accepted, and Catapult, among others. And she teaches at the Writing Institute at Sarah Lawrence College, Pace University, and Community Writing Centers. And she lives outside of New York City with her husband and children. Welcome, Jimin. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, well, me too. Um, I, I read about the genesis of the apology, and I thought it was so fascinating because, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong about this, but you said that you, you culled years of memories and wrote fragments on your laptop for years, and you didn't really have a plan. And it, it reminded me of Lan Samantha Chang, who we had on Right Minded a while back, and, and she told us that she'll sometimes do years of what she calls useless writing which then inadvertently, at least sometimes, leads her to her letter to her most recent novel, I know. So I was wondering if you could tell us more about how writing these fragments and sifting through them, you know, led to your novel, The Apology. Yeah, that's a great question. I, um, you know, this wasn't the case with A Small Revolution. I think I had this idea for a story for that early on, and then I found my way to the, the segmented form. So that was a process of taking away. But with the apology, for years, I've just been doing this free writing. I'm a big fan of it. Um, I know that in your book, The Art of Brevity, that you are also a big proponent of going short. And I find that to be so helpful as writers to um, just exercise that writing muscle every day and write however long, but what's what I observe and what's on my mind and so the apology started with this fragment, this sort of, this sense of an absence, this longing, and I didn't really know what to do with it. But the story that I was working on, I'm not separate from this, sort of didn't have, like the, the story was there, but it didn't have this kind of energy in the language. And that's what I love about what you say about how with short pieces, the language kind of goes in multiple directions, right? That there's sort of this, this energy, this tension, and it points to the things that aren't said. And I think I, I've been a, you know, I'm sort of a frustrated poet. I've always loved that about white space. 
And so I just was struggling with that book. And every now and again, I would bring something to my writer's group and it was always something, there was something in here. In the early part of the book, there's a lot about missing a sister. And, you know, I, I, I have felt that kind of absence all my life, um, having come here as an immigrant from Korea and having left family, having left a grandmother, and um, also feeling isolated and lonely growing up. And so I think there was energy in writing about that kind of longing. Um, and then my mother died and in 2016, and um, I found this kind of character emerge that seemed to be connected to this voice. And so absolutely, this novel has come from many different fragments. Um, even the niece, Taeyang, who appears later, I thought she was going to have her own story and yet she seemed to fit perfectly into this longer narrative. Well, and Jimin, this might build upon what you're talking about right now, because you do an interesting exercise with your students where you have them write about a time when they felt powerless, and then you have them go back and change it to fiction and then change the outcome. So as you're talking about all these different feelings and energy, um, Grant told me too that the apology kind of came out of that. So could you speak a little bit more about that and specifically about powerlessness? Yeah, thank you so much for for reading the other things that I've written about this. It's it's really gratifying. My first novel was very it was it was very tough material for me. And with the apology here again, I thought, oh, here I am going into this this very into the sadness. And I wanted to write something. I think I needed something hopeful. And I had given that because I noticed with my students that um, they could talk, they could write a lot about what they were very sad about, but often we didn't get to anything joyful. And I noticed that, especially in, in pieces of writing, I would ask them for contrast. And so that exercise kind of came out of that. What would, where, where does your character go in terms of their journey? Could they go to an opposite place? Could they, so the, the feeling empowered came out of that. When you feel really upset about something, how can you then turn it around and relate it to then the character's journey? And so with the apology also, she's 105 and has this heavy burden. So where could she go? And for me, I wanted this to be more of a comic novel. I wanted it to be fun. I needed it to be fun when I was shaping it and rewriting it the most we were in lockdown. And my friend Brian was diagnosed with a brain tumor and no one, the, the people around me who were the most confident, um, you know, optimists were really worried during that time. And I didn't see that. So, so I, I thought this is, this was, this was something that I could do to make myself feel better. And also um, when I was meeting with my friend, Brian, each week we would talk about it and I felt like I had to bring something funny and positive to this. Well, Jim, and I want to dig into the book uh, more directly here and, and, and through your narr narrator, Janga, 
who is 105 years old, as you said, and and when she leaves Seoul to travel to the United States to help resolve a, a complicated situation involving a family secret. So right there, a lot of drama. But I was curious, why did you decide to have a ghost tell this story and then a 105-year-old ghost at that? And I'm I'm also curious if you had a real-life model for the narrator. And, and I, I just was thinking that it must be such a challenge to write a character who's so old, you know, it's almost like writing an historical novel in a way. Um, I've never written about somebody that old, I guess. And I'm thinking of it as an interesting challenge. Yeah, that's a great question. So there's a couple of things going on here. Um, she's in, 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 to my mind, she's speaking in this space between Korean and English. Right. Okay. So I just sort of want to address how she might sound on the page and I say that because she's a Korean woman telling the story. It's in English. And I'm trying to convey how she would tell the story. So it's not literal. And so it's interesting because some people have said, well, is this what a 105-year-old sounds like? And I've said, well, this is how she presents herself. But I also want to say, and thank you for this opportunity of saying, as we're talking about language, that we as writers were we're translating, right? We're not dictating. Even though people say, oh, this character came to me and, and you know, it was in this voice, but still, we're still acting as someone in the middle presenting the story. So I chose a 105-year-old character because I wanted her to be absurd. Maybe I should have chosen a 150-year-old character, and that would have been more absurd. But I wanted, I wanted it to, I wanted her to be on that kind of border. There are women, there are people who are 105. It's possible. And is it slightly comical that she and her sisters, her older sister, who's even older than her, telling her that she's too frail to go to the United States, right? So, but she's, you know, the older sister is able to go, so she's so. Um, because I, I want, I wanted to also feature the survival, um, the strength of women, Korean women that I've known, how age doesn't stop them. And so then if their age doesn't stop them, then I didn't want life to stop them. So she dies right in the beginning, but she goes on. And so I wanted that to be kind of a statement about how we can persevere in the face of what seems to be so final. Does that answer your question? I, lo I love it. Yeah, no, it's perfect. And, and thank you. It's inspiring also. Uh -huh. I want to ask you about Seoul. You were born there and Seoul has a big place in the novel, but then you moved away when you were quite young. So how did you go about creating Seoul on the page? I've been in South Korea three times in my life. Um, the last two were in 2016. My mother had a stroke here in the United States, and my father decided to take her to South Korea for treatment. And against all of our wishes, she has children here, 10 grandchildren. She's very proud of them. Her closest sister it was very painful go through that because we wouldn't be able to see her as often. I mean, certainly um, it's very hard to travel there regularly from the East Coast. So I had this opportunity to go there and actually go to a Korean funeral. 
So it was when she died. So um, I, I wanted to set this novel in Korea. And it's actually the kind of the opposite of a small revolution, right? In a small revolution, the characters go from the United States to Korea in this way. I went in the other direction. Um, so it was, it was familiar to me. It was on my mind. And then I checked with a couple of people who grew up there and visited more often um, if I'd gotten the facts right. Um, and it's also been fun with the movie Parasite and all the K-dramas. It's just been fun to see how much Seoul has changed and to be in that world. Well, Jimin, uh, on the subject of journeys, I'm very interested in your journey as an author. And in some ways, that is um, the main uh, gist or theme of this show. Mm. And I heard uh, you once say that when you were young, that being an Asian American writer seemed like an impossible dream. And and we talk a lot about the value of community on the show. And I, and I also read that you took part in the Asian American Writers Workshop. Um, so I was wondering if you can tell us how you turned what seemed like an impossible dream into a reality and, and then what things played a key role. Yeah, that's a big question, right? So I would say that um, a lot of this had to do with my family in particular and the places where I grew up. I think that, um, and also the time because the internet didn't exist. And so it was very hard to find community. And I think I'm the kind of person who really needed, needed that support. My parents are both physicians, and there was a lot of pressure from them for us to become doctors. Both my brothers are doctors. And I just sadly couldn't do anything else. I think I told you, Grant, like I got you know, C's and D's, nearly failed elementary mathematics you know, could only write. So what helped me was certainly moving to New York. But even then, like I submitted some things to Asian American Writers Workshop, which was just starting then. But I didn't actively participate because I still didn't feel confident in claiming that space as a writer. So I went and got my graduate degree. Uh, I was almost 30. And... um then I had my children, and I still felt a lot of pressure from my parents. When I was in my 30s, my father was still sending me information on med schools. <laughs> That's how determined he was. And, um, and being shy and being an introvert, I think when I was able to have access to online communities, um, on Facebook, there's a great Korean-American writers group. And it's so wonderful to see everyone cheering each other on there. That helped me. But then I had two kids, so I had to juggle all that. And so working with students, being in a writer's community, I still felt, you know, it's this thing. And that's why I'm kind of writing about family so much. Being able to make space and not feel that you need to make someone else's life be what they want it to be sort of my mother was a physician in in Korea but when we moved here she gave that up so um, when she got sick I felt this kind of rage (laughs) at what had happened to her my father taking her to Korea all of this and I um, felt 
much more clarity about this novel that I had been toying with. There's domestic abuse in that first novel. There's some, uh, there's a lot of sort of themes of violence. And so I kind of poured that into that rage into that book. Then, well, I want to oh, ask you, sorry, well, my next question just goes exactly into that. So maybe I yeah. can just build upon it and you can share what you were about to share because, um, so you've talked about your mom passing and that you also lost a friend during COVID to cancer. Uh, so you're, we wanted to ask you about this urgency that you were feeling to write these novels uh, and, and maybe how that's changed your relation to your work in general. Um, so perhaps that's where you were going and, and I would love to hear more about the journey. Yes, I think I think that um, when we went into lockdown, and there was another novel that I was playing around with after a small revolution. So then my friends kept saying, "These fragments that you've been writing, do something with that." And then we went into lockdown, and I found that I could put them together into this story of this woman. And then I I wrote. Um, we had nothing to do here besides sort of supporting my, my children who had come back from college. Um, and I spent more time sitting in this chair and being frustrated and angry and pouring all of that into this character who seemed to, she had this confidence that I didn't have. She had this hopefulness, this determination. And I was determined in writing with my friend Brian that um, I would get this done as fast as possible. So I think that's what happened. And there didn't seem to be the pressure. There's no, there's no pressure anymore. I, I, I didn't have to become a doctor for my mother. <laughs> there was this vast space where I used to speak to her a lot. And now there was just silence there. Also, I, I've said this a couple of times. My children are incredibly affirming. So um, I think with community in various ways, in various forms, and my children asking me all the time if I'm writing um, and what I'm writing, I felt I felt seen as a writer and that it had value. What I was doing had value and I could just go do it. And who knew what was going to happen in the world? That's so great, Jim. And I, I rarely hear authors talk about how their, their children are a pathway to the page. <laughs> it's usually more, <laughs> more an obstacle. So that's really nice to hear. And as I, I wanted to talk about, this is going a little bit away from your book, but, um, you know, in my introduction to you, I, I mentioned this article that I recently read in, in, I think it's the most recent Poets and Writers, but it's, it's, it's about all the things you learned after your manuscript was with the publisher. And I, I feel like generally in writing conversations, we focus so much on all that a writer needs to know to get published, you know, which is a tremendous amount. But few of us really know what's in store for our work once it's you know, received by a publishing house and, and we don't know how we're going to, what it's like to work with an editor and a copy editor and a cover designer and a marketing team and a publicist. And I know I was really in the dark and might still be in the dark, you know, because I feel like I learned something new with each book. So I know you can't cover that whole article in an answer, but I was wondering if you could just um, share, you know, a top one or two experiences or tips uh, for a writer who is about to enter this part of the journey. Yeah, that's and, and wait till I'm going to write another one on marketing and publicity. Oh, good. That one is going to be very interesting. So I, I would say um, I think the the thing is writers to keep in mind is 
we need to get our manuscript into the best shape possible. Sometimes people think they'll go out and an editor will really do that for them. So there's that stage of really getting it ready. And I say that to all my students who are working on novels. Really make sure it's the best, it's in the best form you can make it. But then when you sell it, there's still work to be done. And that was surprising to me. And at various times, people said, oh, I went with the editor who asked for the least amount of work to be done. And others who said they went with an editor that they'd admired for a long time. And so I would say being open and being flexible to that conversation and choosing the editor who's going to help you do more work if you need to do more work to make it better. And that, so I, I think that's important. And then um, when you're going through the copy editing process, to be willing, again, to work with the copy editor, to flag all kinds of things, bring up all the questions. They want to hear all the questions. And I think some writers get into this, either they feel like they've got to do exactly what the copy editor said, and so they can't ask those questions, or they they get upset and offended. And so I think knowing that your publishing company really wants you to succeed and having those conversations. And an editor can be so important to that because with my Asian American editor, I knew she was going to be on my side about everything related to language and the choices I wanted to make. And we could have conversations about it. So I think that um, those are the, the two points most important. Well, thank you so much, Jimin, and th- and congratulations again on the apology. It's a real accomplishment. Oh, thank you. And can I just say that I love your epigraph? You got this thing about moments. Blessed be moments, millimeters, and even humbler than these, the shadows of all tiny things by Fernando Pessoa. And I think that's what we need to do as writers is for whatever we're writing is to really be in those moments yeah. that that is really what makes the words on the page live for the reader. Thank you so much for, for saying that. I, I'm in complete agreement, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jimin. We're so happy to have you. Thanks, Brooke and Grant, so much for having me. This has been a true pleasure. We'll be right back after this short break with today's book trend. Well, Brooke, for this week's book trend, you know, we were joking earlier that uh, we could do every week on AI, but I think we should do it, you know, bring it back regularly because it's such a force in, in the writing and uh, publishing world and beyond that. And and one of the more prevalent uh, recommendations emerging in the AI conversation has to do with watermarking AI. And I, I read an interesting article recently in Wired where writer Alistair Kroll broke down how we can basically tag AI at the point of origin to ensure that it's noble or discoverable 
discoverable as AI. And basically it says that AI already has coding attached to letters or characters. And as such, we could enforce a situation in which AI has its own alphabet and would therefore be able to be revealed, you know, whether easily or through forensics as, as AI by humans. That's very reassuring. Um, <laughs> and I, I thought this was one of the more nuanced takes that I've read. And yet it seems that if we don't get going on this idea or, or, or one like it pretty soon, we're going to miss the boat. Yeah, I think we're going to miss the boat, you know, because I think it just arrived with such blunt force, you know, and in late July this past summer, seven companies, I'm going to name them because it's interesting, it's Amazon, Anthropic, Google, Inflection, Meta, Microsoft, and OpenAI made commitments to have new standards for safety and security uh, at a meeting at the White House, but by all accounts, it was a pretty unenforceable and hollow promise that they made. Uh, and of course, we're not the only country uh, in the world. <laughs> you know, we're not, mm -hmm. these are not the only companies in the AI race. Uh, that said, I like that watermark idea. I, I mean, I would appreciate knowing that something is generated by AI. I personally want that. I, I, I'm curious to hear your take, Grant, but I like as a reader, I, I like the idea of AI identifying itself as AI. But the problem with the whole conversation is that it seems clear to me uh, that humans would be pretty disincentivized to necessarily implement something like this because AI is like essentially becoming a tool for maximizing work, for creating things faster. You know, we're obviously fearing it becoming a tool for cheating, you know, and not just for students, but from all kinds of sectors where AI is going to be creating content for humans. Uh, so I don't know, it's a good idea, but I just personally see it being thwarted because it's people who are controlling this stuff, you know, and if we don't have enough incentive to safeguard, uh, you know, or, or notify people that something is AI, um, I, I, yeah, that's my, my feeling on it. But I know I get very cynical on this conversation. So uh, what do you think, Grant? Do you think that humanity would, would do the right thing in this, <laughs> in this scenario? Will humanity do the right thing? Probably not. Um, <laughs> Never. Yeah, I, think, I think we're not doing the right thing in a, in a number of regards. It's interesting to me that the, that the companies you listed had that meeting after putting AI in the world and endangering us in various ways. <laughs> and then that they didn't make a big commitment to do anything anyway. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I've got some trepidation, definitely, and more than trepidation. But I, but I also like to think that there are some hopeful angles here. And, and I'm speaking more as a writer and a creator than as a publisher. So I think it's very best, and I'm talking about it's very best, AI tools can act as collaborators and they can provide prompts and they can even be a type of conversation partner. And I can see some writers using them to, to enhance their creativity, you know, not as a replacement or a way to cheat or even for increased productivity. And I've had several demos of AI writing tools from different companies and I've, I've seen some of this, uh, you know, I've seen how it can take this form. But, but I also think, you know, that we need to think about like, why we write and i think the the joy and satisfaction of telling a story you know is, is to dig deep to find your story so i believe that that most writers will continue to write to satisfy you know the needs of their personal expression and truth but that's not to say that that many um, will use it to cheat or to make productivity gains or to cut expenses so there there are obviously real threats and I especially fear that younger writers who grew up with AI might be less inclined to stay in those uncomfortable moments of writing and creativity to explore the nuances and counterpoints of their stories. You know, I, I worry that they'll turn to AI too impulsively, especially if they've grown up with it. But I, but I also know there are some very smart educators out there who already think about creative uses of AI in the classroom. 
So, Brooke, what do you think, um, going back to your fears, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. what do you think are the biggest ramifications on the publishing industry? And, and are there any positives in your opinion? Yeah, I think the ramifications are already being felt. Uh, we're seeing new products emerge also. Like I recently saw this website that's offering a seal that you can put on your work that says something like human generated. Again, this just like triggers all my cynicism because it's like people lie. <laughs> you know, and so like who in the world is, you know, assuring us that it's not human generated. So I just think these things are kind of silly. Um, there's all kinds of ways that publishers are using AI to improve systems though. And I think that's its best use. I haven't used that kind of thing yet, but I can totally imagine, you know, like using AI to create tip sheets, busy work, things like that. And on the other hand, you know, do I want my descriptive copy created by AI? I, I don't know. I So I'm on the fence about some of that. Some of my authors have raised concerns recently that they have gotten some reviews that feel like they've been written by AI, but again, there's no way to prove it. So it's very presence is creating skeptics I think there's that, but it's also meaning that we all have to be more discerning. So I, that part to me is not such a bad thing. Um, I think when it comes to fiction and memoir, we're definitely going to see AI having less impact than we will on other kinds of genres like self-help. I hope I'm not proven wrong here, but I just don't think there's enough money or the ability for an author to bank on the outcome of the sales of a novel or memoir uh, to make people want to take the time that it takes to try to generate something like that with AI. That's my feeling. But on the other hand, for self-help and prescriptive nonfiction, I think it's going to be a really different situation. Situation, I think authors are going to lean heavily into AI to do, you know, research, write tables of contents, maybe even draft uh, entire books. And that concerns me because we already have too much volume. And so I can just foresee a world in which we're flooded with even more books uh, because people are able to churn them out faster. And that's not necessarily something that I look forward to. I agree. And, and there's just so much that we don't know about this space and so much to speculate about. And, you know, it's an important trend and one we all need to be following and reading about. And Brooke, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what happens in specific industries. Um, you know, I think publishing as well as media and other industries that rely on content are, of course, you know, going to be at the forefront of this because we all have the most to lose. And there are already a number of lawsuits in progress right now, notably from the Authors Guild, and uh, publishing is definitely in defensive mode. So we'll revisit this one again this year. Uh, we're try we'll try to balance that because, as I said, we could do it literally every uh, week. <laughs> but listeners, in, in the meantime, if there's anything you see that is worth sharing with us on this topic, please do. And, and if you're negotiating a contract right now, make sure your publisher has some sort of clause about AI. I think this is, is sort of the bare minimum protection content creators can shore up for themselves for the time being. Uh, but in the meantime, in the less scary world, in the humane world, please focus on believing in your story and telling your story in the most truthful way possible because we read and write for truth and connection. That's what being right-minded means. So thanks for listening and let's continue the conversation next week. We'll be here.